we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. My guest today is Annette Rupalski. Annette is the Biodiversity Director at Mount Rothwell, Victoria's largest native animal sanctuary, just 50 kilometres outside of Melbourne. Within the fenced-off, predator-free area, Annette and her team work hard to ensure the survival of some of Australia's most critically endangered species. On this episode, she shares her journey, explains how dingoes are a vital help with their efforts, and she also reflects on the deadly bushfires that almost wiped out the entire southern brush-tailed rock wallaby population. I'm excited to talk to Annette today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Annette, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. No worries. Thanks for having me. You started out in 2003 as a tour guide while studying ecotourism. Um, when when did you know that this, what you're doing right now, was your calling? Like, what was your childhood like? What do we have to picture that like? Yeah, I um, I don't know. It was, it was a little rough. Um, I grew up in the western suburbs, so it was um, you know, a little bit hard. My um, my parents split up, so mum was always at work, and. She grew up on a farm, um, so I think we took that on from her, or I certainly did. Um, so I sort of ended up having a bit of a farm at home in suburbia. I know um, we would go to the market and I'd bring home a cat and there were these two ducks that flew past our street and we just went running into the street through people's backyards and caught these two ducks and took them home. And so before we knew it, we had a whole menagerie at home. I even had a turkey at one point. So um, I feel <laughs> like it was inbuilt in me. Animals was just like my family. So um, yeah, it was it was just um, nat very natural to me as, as a child. Um, And then I thought it was something I would always do. Um, I, I thought I'd be a vet and um, I did work experience at one for a week and then decided not to do that because <laughs> there was a little bit too much blood around, um, which is quite ironic because we still get that. But um, I suppose we get a lot of life and natural landscape now. Yeah. And, and somehow I fell into my, my dream job um, without the intent to. So I sort of gave up on my animal uh, conservation dream um, after that vet experience, and I and I thought I'd go into ecotourism, um, and that led me back to animals anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But that's sometimes the best way to to end up, um, you know, in in these positions. I find like if you don't plan it all out and you just fall into it, and you have some different experiences along the way, and You know, because I mean, sometimes you, you might not even be sure what you want to do and, and you follow one path and you end up somewhere completely different. Well, that's fantastic that you ended up doing exactly what you would seeked out in the in the first place. Um, well, how how did you how, how did you evolve into the role 
as as the director um, at Mount Rothwell? Yeah, well, I, I guess it started off as the tour guide here, and I uh, during that time I did a few other jobs. Um, I worked at the zoo and, and I worked um, in an amphibian research centre and, and a few other places and then, um, <clears throat> yeah, came back as the education officer in a part-time role and then uh, the manager at the time left and, and I took over reluctantly. I, I didn't think I could ever do the job, um, but I was supported by, by management and the owner and all the volunteers and uh, it became really easy for me to fall into that role and and then it was almost like a mission for me. You know, I just really wanted to prove that I can do a good job because I was reluctant to go into it to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't think I was good enough. And um, that trust that I received from, from the, the owner um, just made me want to prove that I can do the best that I can out here and and really kick some conservation goals, which I, I hope I kind of have done. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we can all agree you, you have. And um, just just as a scale, I mean, we're talking a 450 hectare sanctuary. That's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of land and you, you're caring for a lot of different endangered uh, species and animals. I mean, within that fenced area, you have eastern quolls, um, eastern barred bandicoots, obviously southern brush-tailed uh, rock wallabies, rufous betongs and, and many more. Um, what I think is amazing is when we think of, you know, uh, conservational efforts um, and, and the, the animals that we connect with that. And we think of tigers, pandas, polar bears, obviously in Australia, koalas, they're like the poster children for conservational efforts. Yeah. But um, ecosystems are so complex. And I also think it's no wonder that some people still tend to overlook or not identify the, the positive effects of, of small parts or the smaller parts of these very complex systems. Um, how exactly do some of the marsupials that you look after benefit the ecosystem and landscape? Yeah, well, we call them ecosystem engineers, a lot of the species that we have. Um, a lot of them are digging animals, so things like the beton, the potteroo, the bandicoot. Um, they will all dig and turn over the soil. So one potteroo bandicoot can, can turn over up to three tonnes of soil per year per animal. Um, so we've got, you know, up to 1,500 bandicoots here. So that's a lot of soil being turned over. And I guess the benefit of that is, you know, you restore that, that function back into that ecosystem, back to how it was, you know, 200 years ago before early settlers had an impact on the landscape through clearing or, or development or, you know, just removing those important species from the landscape. And so I guess, you know, in turn, you've got this, this beautiful, pristine, landscape that um you know is is working how it's meant to be working and you get all the benefits that, that come out of that so you sort of get you know less intensity fires you get more diversity in the landscape you get you know more butterflies and insects and and wildflowers and it's just stunning you know there's a reduction in um in weed cover when you remove the rabbits and so we're starting to find out that as soon as you take away the modifications from the landscape that we've brought in and return it to how it was, the landscape manages itself. Um, suddenly you, have, you invest a little bit less in it because you've got these animals doing your job for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what I also think every time you step foot on a sanctuary like yours, it's it's almost like a time machine, right? You you can actually feel and experience um, what landscape looks like or must have looked like before we interfered with it and before we had such a massive loss of habitat. Um, and and that's that's such a fantastic experience for people to really not only you know, learn about it, but also see it and experience it and see it with their own eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like people drive up to our front gate and it's this big green, you know, two, three metre high gate and everybody thinks, you know, with a big fence around the, the sanctuary, it's it's like Jurassic Park. But, you, but, you know, we're dealing with other extinct animals or endangered animals that are extinct outside of our fences. And so sort of like the modern age uh, Jurassic Park where, yeah, you'll only see those species within our sanctuary, which is, you know, it's sort of terrifying. And I always say to visitors or volunteers, you know, imagine when those first Europeans stepped off the ships and and put their foot down on Australia or Van Diemen's Land, as they called it, um, because they, they had, you know, all sorts of noises in the bushes and striped tigers that looked like a, a dog with stripes and a pouch and giant teeth, you know, hunting animals squealing around the landscape and curlews that whistled. It was just, it's something that we will never know, you know, unless you set up these sanctuaries and return as much as you can. You you don't really appreciate the sounds of, of a proper ecosystem in Australia. It's just, it's been lost. This uh, leads me to to my next question, actually, because you mentioned the fencing or the fences. Um Fences are a part, a vital part of conservational efforts and are they becoming a vital tool to help preserve uh, endangered species? Another example, for example, up here is um, the Aussie Ark and there are many more um, growing and popping up all over the, the continent. But there's also pushback to, to that kind of you know, effort to, to, to use fences as one of the vital tools for it. You're obviously seeing the value in, in the use of, of fences, but what is your take on this? Is it possible, is it even possible to ensure the survival of certain animals without fencing uh, solutions? Not at this stage. Um, at this stage, we haven't really found a landscape solution to reintroduce all of these species back into that landscape as it is. Um, so unless we, we you know, a, a new tool comes out or a new innovation, a silver bullet to control the, those threats, um, we need to use fenced um sanctuaries as a bit of a stepping stone to just maintain those species from extinction. Um, and so I guess we've just got to make the best choice out of out of two terrible options, which is you either let the animals go extinct or you fence them in, but there is the, the risk of animals, you know, stopping the flow of, of your more common animals, um, which we've decided to, to go for this option. Um, and, and, you know, fences are, are constantly evolving and, and being redesigned and we're looking at ways to allow flow um, of native animals and, and deter foxes. There's, um, there's some new innovations underway at the moment, which is looking at sort of leaky fences that does allow some of the, the, the natives to flow through more. But, um, yeah, we need to make sure that foxes can't also move through as well as cats and some of those other threatened um I guess those those species that are a threat to our native animals. When it comes to the captive breeding programs, what what is the key to success for those programs? I mean, I'm talking about. Um, I read about you know the the importance of of uh, keeping uh, keeping it genetic uh, keeping it genetically diverse or as diverse as possible. That's like a main factor. What what are the key key points to success for those programs? 
I guess, um, you know, from our the way we set up our models um, for recovery of species is just ensuring that, you know, the species are genetically diverse. So you are working with, um, you know, the, the basic building blocks of making sure that the breeding is maximised and their fitness and health. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of the species are usually too far um, in decline to, to intervene from a genetic perspective. So in, in those cases, we, we do consider sort of outbreeding out where we find the closest relative and then crossbreed them just to add diversity. And um, we've done this uh, in, in southern brush-tail rock wallabies and eastern barred bandicoots. Um, it's also been done in mountain pygmy possums. And, and that basically just ensures that when you release them, they've got the best fighting chance at survival. Um, they can potentially breed all year round instead of seasonally. Um, they either become bigger or fitter or feistier, less, um, more resistant to parasites. So there's, there's multiple benefits to making sure that then, you know, you're minimising breeding basically. And um, once we set up those founding groups, every, everything on site, all our species are all genetically profiled. And, um, and then we build a, a conservation plan around that and then build their numbers up in the sanctuaries, in the fence sanctuaries, and then we work out how to get them back out into the landscape. Yeah, and, and with DNA profiling and the genetic research that is involved, I read somewhere that, that it's also about looking at making predators weaker. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, it's, it's just working out their points of weakness. So I suppose our biggest learning lesson was uh, when we were setting up our sanctuary at Tiverton, um, we thought it was going to be quite an easy process to remove the foxes. And um, in the end, uh, there was one fox that, that really stood out and she took about two years to remove. And across those two years, she had two litters, which, um, you know, multiplied the population significantly. Um, so suddenly we weren't just hunting her, we were hunting all the kids as well. But what we realised is the more methods of control that we applied to her, the more she avoided and the more smarter she became. And she was evolving to become the smartest fox in Australia. Um, so, so that really dawned on us and we thought we must be doing something wrong. And if this is just one fox in an example of, of a thousand hectares, imagine what we're doing on the landscape scale. You know, we've been baiting and shooting and spotlighting and and you know applying the, the traditional control methods over you know years and years, you know, tens of years and and I'm not really sure how long, but you know, quite a long time and a lot of money's invested in it. And um yeah, I think we we've just it's dawned dawned on us that we're we're not winning this battle. And we need to now find their weaknesses and now use their weakness against them. So that's that's what we're uh, investigating at the moment. How do you shift and de-evolutionise a fox and find out how you can manipulate them to not impact native animals in the landscape? So it we we'll probably be looking at a number of different trials that we apply on landscape and and see which ones work, but. They'll include a fair bit of innovation, um, but it's mainly just putting them through a few different tests. I think the idea of, of creating a super predator by accident, that is yeah. <laughs> pretty it's, it's daunting. Good enough motivation. <laughs> yeah. 
um, one of one of the I call them tools, but they're obviously beautiful animals. Um, one of the tools in your toolbox are your dingoes. Um, yeah. I think that is really fascinating. They help you um, um, fight feral animals within the compound. Tell us a little bit more about the two dingoes. Yeah, so it's it's mainly one that works really well. The other one's kind of a companion for it. Um, so Chili is um, quite bonded with with myself. I, I raised her since she was four weeks old, and she grew up with my dogs. Um, and she happened to bond really well with one of my male dogs, who's about six months older than her. Um, and it's interesting because we run all our, our conservation dogs and our dingoes together as a pack in the car park. Um, and they set this hierarchy. And for some reason, Fletch, my domestic dog, um, he is in charge of the pack, even though her brother, Nellie, is actually quite significantly larger than him and stronger. Um, but for some reason, he leads the pack. And um, Chili has a little bit of a crush on Fletch. And so, <laughs> that helps. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I had this idea of, you know, we had this female fox that we've been chasing. We had, you know, 40 cameras watching her every move. Um, we knew sort of where she was moving. We had potential den sites where, where we thought she might be using. So we sort of, you know, knew her movements, but we could never narrow them down. And so I thought, okay, she's coming into Easter soon. So she's going to be breeding very soon what can I do and I thought okay well perhaps if she's in season um my dingo might pick up on that and if I bring Fletch then her motivation will be to get this female competition out of the way to to keep her male okay brilliant yeah so it's sort of just using the knowledge that we have and applying it to landscape again. And that worked wonders. So I put Chili on the ground. Um, initially, I didn't have her on the lead. Um, we thought we might sacrifice a few sheep. Um, but um, she followed me the entire way, or I followed her. And then uh, she did eventually find the sheep and we had to put her on the lead. But, but now she works perfectly well on a lead um, around the sheep and puts a nose on the ground and follows the trail of female foxes. And so not only does she locate their poo, um, but she can locate dens. I think she's probably not fast enough to actually catch the fox um, because the fox is moving ahead of us. Um, I'm obviously too much of a slow, at a, too much of a slow pace to keep her on the lead, but um, yeah. certainly if we let her off, she'd probably grab the fox, I think. Um, but we, we don't allow, we're, we're quite happy just collecting the scats. And, and what that does is we send that to Melbourne University and then they analyse the scat and work out who the individual um, scat or, or what, where that scat, who, whose it is and what the relatedness is of the animals left in the area, but also what they're eating. So we know what they're feeding on. Um, so it sort of paints this picture and the more information you gather, you know, you put that all on a map of where all the scats are, you know their movements, you can find their bodies or you can find their dens and you can treat them. Um, so it's more of a way of fine-tuning because it's really a needle in a haystack. We're talking about one individual across a 1,000 hectares, so it's um, it's quite challenging. <laughs> but I love the idea that that you're basically playing a game of chess with this highly intelligent fox. <laughs> trying to outsmart figure, the fox. And outsmart the fox. Um, I know. Yeah. Using a dingo. I mean, what can be more Australian than that? That is just I know, fantastic. Right? 
can't say that. <laughs> I never thought of it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's just brilliant. I, I, I love that. And there's that photo of you and, and Chili in action. It's just brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, she's um, she's great value. But it's interesting just watching her behavior, you know, like being a dingo, being still a wild animal. Yeah. She obviously has the drive to, you know, focus on other things and you need to translate that. You need to speak dingo to understand what she's telling you. Yeah, yeah. And so you, we can now look at her and you know when she's onto a quail, you know when she's onto a rat, you know when she's onto a potential bandicoot and you pull them off and then you re-divert them back onto the fox trail. So, you know, us learning, it's funny because everyone's like, how do you train a dingo? And it's, it's not the case. It's how do does the dingo train us? Yeah. So the, the dingo is talking through a behavior and we just need to know how to translate that. So <laughs> that's what we do. You should write a book, Learning Dingo. That's, that's yeah. really, that's good. You should really write a book, uh, Learning Dingo. That, that, that is, that is fantastic on that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and another massive, massive topic, obviously that I would like to, to touch on with you, um, are the, the deadly 2019, 2020 bushfires. Because, you know, the whole country was in shock f for several reasons. But you, um, with the sanctuary, I mean, th these, these bushfires threatened a lot of populations all over the country. But they also threatened the population of, you know, the critically endangered southern brush-tailed uh, rock wallabies. Um, we came pretty close to potentially losing this entire species. Um, and it was a pretty drastic wake-up call for, for a lot of people. Um, what impact did this have? I mean, you received generous support and, and a lot of support, but w w what was the impact of all that? Yeah, yeah, that that time was absolutely terrifying. You know, we um, the, what sort of first sparked it, you know, on our radar, I probably shouldn't say that, but um, what the way it came to our attention was um, mm. I got a call from from the crew at, at Mulligan's Flat Sanctuary because there was a fire at, at the near the ACT airport. And, um, and they called me saying, we might have to evacuate the animals from Mulligan's flat if this fire gets any worse. And yeah. suddenly my mind went to, okay, this could be over 300 animals. And so I, I went into, you know, I guess into this mode where I thought, okay, action mode, let's hit the ground running, get everything we need to do ready. And we had probably a two-week lead-up time. They said, you know, if this fire gets out of control, We've got about two weeks to do this. And so um, it was great having that um, warning in December. And so we got everything ready. We got our sanctuary ready. We got our plans all sorted out here. And, and then we were just waiting. And they managed to get hold of, of that fire before it went anywhere near Mulligan's Flat. Um, but they did mention uh, Tip and Billa Nature Reserve and yeah, that that was just as the fire started a little bit, I think, I guess a month later. Um, but luckily we had everything lined up on our end and it was just a matter of, of making a call and just saying we're here if you need us. Any animals that need to be transferred, we've already got everything in order on our end and we can actually fly down to you guys and help you collect all your animals and bring them back here if we need to. We've got all the personnel, we've got planes, we've got cars, we've got everything that we need. and. Um, they didn't want to make the call because, you know, you don't want to shift animals unnecessarily. It's it's quite stressful. Yeah. Um, so you only move an animal if, if it's needed. Um, but there was this huge fire front that just kept getting bigger and bigger 
flying straight towards Tippenbilla Nature Reserve and um, we were getting quite antsy towards the end. We were getting very nervous. Um, yeah, so th there was there were a few um, hiccups there. We are collecting some of the animals and, and then transferring them through, but we were, we were actually quite lucky. Um, I think at the last minute they managed to get all the animals out, which was fantastic, all the priority animals that, that we'd identified. And um, the ADF actually stepped in and said, we will personally fly them in an ADF plane. Um, so, so all Tibbinbilla had to do was, was load the wallabies and betongs onto, onto these ADF planes. And then they landed at Avalon Airport and we collected them. I think it was about 48 degrees on the day. Wow. And, and my crew had been working around the clock, just setting enclosures up, wetting them all down making sure these animals didn't get into shock. We had vets on standby if anything jumped out or got stressed through the transport process. We had catchers on hand because we were releasing them into free-range paddocks. So if they jumped any fences, we had to have people with nets around because um, we just weren't sure what they were capable of. And um, in the end, yeah, we uh, I think a few of my staff actually got a bit of heat exhaustion because they just worked so hard that day. Um, we brought them in and... And just as we we're going to release them, they um, it just started pouring down rain, and it went from forty eight degrees to I think like twenty three. And we released, we opened up these boxes, and these rock wallabies that had been sitting in the boxes for like four or five days had just hopped up onto these big granite boulders, and we're just licking all the rain off the boulders, just enjoying the fresh air because they'd been in smoke for the last few days, and and um, you know in really hot conditions. So, so I think they all survived, which was really exciting. Um, we actually ended up keeping the betongs here and we're establishing a larger population now. Um, and we sent back all the rock wallabies. Um, but basically, yeah, I, think, I believe the fire pretty much just stopped at their doorstep. Um, it did burn part of their property, but it didn't actually burn the, the sanctuary area down. So, so they were quite lucky. Um, they had a good plan there and they had sprinkler systems and everything in play. Um, they had had a fire in the past, so I think they, they had quite a bit ready on site to, to ensure that it didn't happen again, which was really good. But a very, very close call. <laughs> what is the goal? Like speaking, speaking of the, the, the rock wallabies, for example, that you, that you were able to save um, throughout that time, what is the goal to ensure the long-term survival of these, these wallabies? Like how, how is it looking at the moment realistically? Yeah, I think, I think it's looking really bright. You know, for the last 40 years, the population has never peaked beyond 100 animals. Um, and I remember standing at the front um, when all these fires sparked up and I was just at the front of my office and I sort of looked out and I saw, you know, all the, all the, the sky was covered in, in smoke and you could just, you know, you were choking on it. And I thought, we've got a fire trickling through the one colony in the wild in Gippsland, um, which is 50 individuals, they could potentially wipe them out if it if it reared up. Um, there was the fire going towards Tibimbilla, which was, you know, the 20 animals. And then there's about six um, rock wallabies in the Grampians, um, but they need a bit of work to, to establish as population. Um, and so we we you know have a hundred rock wallabies at Rothwell, but but we thought for a second there, if the fire ends up sparking on our doorstep, that could be the entire Southern Brush Tower Rock Wallaby colony just about 
wiped out. They would be functionally extinct if Rothwell had a fire. And so it dawned on me that we can't have our eggs in the three baskets. <laughs> we needed a few more. Um, we certainly need to build the population up to more than 150 or 170. Um, and so it was interesting because um, our, our article got a little bit of attention and we had a, a philanthropist contact us and they said, what do you need to save this species? And we just said another property. And as a result, a new property has been purchased and um, this site will hold up to potentially 5,000 rock wallabies. Wow. Yeah. And so we've fenced about 80 hectares into an intense feral-proof area and that will automatically build the population up to about 200. Um, so we're going to introduce the wallabies in autumn and um, probably take a couple of years to build up to 200. And then beyond that, well, probably in the next couple of months, we're going to start constructing the fence for the greater 500 hectares that will take us to the 5,000 mark. So for the first time in 40 years, this population will certainly go beyond the 100 individuals or 150 individuals and it will boom to, you know, to the thousands. Um, so it's it's pretty impressive. Um you know, where where the rock wallabies are heading. I think they'll they'll genuinely be um be in the safe zone, I think, once we roll out this plan. And that is certainly great news. And um without sanctuaries, this this obviously wouldn't be possible to do. Um I wanna talk about another sanctuary that has been established, um, one of the latest centuries that have been established um, in Tiverton, which is a thousand hectare working sheep farm, just 200 kilometers west of Melbourne. And what I find interesting about that one, um, it's, is it still the, the state's largest predator-proof estate? Yeah, yeah. So Tiverton, yeah, we used to, we used to hold the record um, of being yeah. the largest and Tiverton has just topped us off. Um, yeah. and, and it's great because it's ours. So, so we just broke our own record. <laughs> That's how you want to have it, right? You break your own record. You, you chop yeah. it off and, you know, number one and two and three and four and then maybe all the way down to 10. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but now in, in Tiverton, it's, um, what was it, 18 kilometers fence? A yep. fence system at a cost of half a million dollars. Yep. It will demonstrate to farmers, especially to farmers, that agriculture and conservation can mix. What are the reactions so far from the from the agriculture community and industry? Yeah, I, I think um, everybody's watching it really closely. Um, but I, I think people are paying attention, and there's there's a few people wanting to apply this um, onto onto their site. So we are broadening that concept there's it's not necessarily bandicoots in, a, in an area but you know people are looking at other sustainable methods that they can apply um so arana is another one that we're setting up at the moment which will have a sanctuary and then an overflow into a 5,000 hectare farm working farm which is sort of an olive plantation and, and sheep area um so it's certainly it I, th I think it's enticing people which is great but we probably just need to um have a bit more time uh, to prove the concept. So we've introduced the Eastern Bard Bandicoot um, and we believe that they are doing quite well. They've all had pouch young. So we're going to monitor next month to see what the population is up to now. Um, but we're also looking at introducing the Eastern Quoll in June. So 
um, we think there'll be multiple benefits for having both those species in that area, a fence excluding foxes so, you know, your lambs don't get predated on, but um, also be, being able to get the income from, from the wool and the sheep uh, as well as, you know, it, it assisting in some of your land management um, requirements. So we actually use the sheep to increase the the diversity in the grassland through strategic grazing. So um, by crash grazing an area, we can actually, yeah, get more wildflowers, more native growth, um, but also the, the sheep's wool is actually a higher quality. So oh, there's sort okay. of win-wins on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Def definitely and um you you um mentioned a while back your goal was 30 sanctuaries by 2030 yeah, that was uh, one of the, the the goals that you that you formulated how's it looking with that yeah it's looking great we're um we're probably gonna yeah get there quicker than we think um so we've got quite a few on the board it's just a matter of hoping that the animal populations build up as quick as our centuries build up, but certainly the, the canvases will be there. Um, we believe we can have 30 centuries within, within a fenced area or, you know, playing a, a significant role to the conservation of a species. And, um, yeah, we're, I think we're, we're pretty good um, on that timeline. Oh, well, and I wish you all the best with that and can't wait to, to hear more about it and get some more updates along the way. Annette, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us today on Talking Australia. No problem. It's my pleasure. It's been fun. <laughs> That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.